I've um, just been reading a book Ooh. called... Um, what is it called? The Sins of Jack Saul, right? It's very good. Um, it's about a, uh, uh, an Irish rent boy wow. uh, in the Victorian times. And then he actually wrote a book himself. And I was reading it literally just before you... Is that how you uh, decided to celebrate St. Patrick's Day is to read yes. a, the story of an Irish rent boy written in his but own fair hand? This stuff is explicit. <laughs> It is vile. I mean, I can read you a section if you like. Um, oh, okay. Let's. W- when was when was this gentleman working? So he died in nineteen oh four. So it would have been eighteen. So this is a Victorian. This, this is a Victorian young man. Yes, called Jack Soul from from Dublin originally, and being as it's St Patrick's Day. So where, I feel where, like where it's, was he playing his trade, though? I think we should probably in London. Him. In London, okay. It's um, it just made me laugh because the actual, the actual guy that he's talking about is called Joe. Brilliant. So it made it made me laugh, right? So, however, he did not hesitate. Although the wavy blushes kept flushing across his pretty face as he threw aside his clothes, and presently stood quite naked before me, whilst the liquor had such an effect on his fine little cock, <laughs> quite six inches long was stiff as a ramrod and evidently caused him considerable embarrassment. Come to me, Joe, you look all right, but I must feel you all over. It just made me laugh as I was reading that. (laughs) You sent me the link. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with this story starts in 1650 because this is when William Burkitt was born his father had been a nonconformist clergyman who had studied at Oxford and had lost many thousands of pounds over the years by annoying the church authorities he sounds like a chap after my own heart well he, he may have had the moral high ground but he definitely didn't have the financial high ground because he did it to the point where he was kicked out of positions in Suffolk and then in Norfolk <sighs> The Fooks. Yeah, so they kept trying to. They're like, look, just. I know, I know you don't agree with everything we're, we're saying, but please just try and hold it together. And he was just too much of a. He was a loose cannon. There's a bit of a rivalry between Suffolk and Norfolk. Is there? Yeah, um, I've got my preference, but I don't want to offend anyone. Well, I, I, maybe that Could was you... it. Maybe it was. Well, you you may not be able to handle. You may not be able to handle this Burkitt, but we can. Hmm. Yeah, was in Norfolk. Yeah. We're, we're made of sterner stuff. We're not going to faint at the idea of his nonconformist views. And then they did. <laughs> that will show them. Yeah. William, though, he decided he'd be nothing like his father. Firstly, he attended Cambridge rather than Oxford. And secondly, he left a position in Suffolk by choice to act as vicar at Dedham in Essex, where he collected money for French Protestant exiles. So, uh, geographically, this has gone all over. We've got Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex, Cambridge, Oxford Mm. in two minutes. The the Burkitts managed to get about. Maybe I'm related. Well, he was, he was, he was, we went to Essex, I'm guessing, because it was closer to the coast and he was wanting Mm. to welcome some French Protestant exiles. And when he collected all the money, he went around personally to, to give out the funds to make sure that, you know, there were no middle managers sort of 
taking all of the charitable funds in um, admin costs okay. and all those yep. kinds of things. So it was 100% of the money that was being collected was, was going to these French exiles, which is it's odd that at times we supported the French. Yeah. I mean, exiles yeah. maybe, but we did support them. <laughs> you may come here if you give us all your money. Mm. He also personally funded the education of a number of poor students to ensure that they could enjoy the same Cambridge education he had. He sounds like a nice chap. And later, after they'd all graduated, he ensured they could find work as missionaries all over the world, should they wish it. So he's like, you want to go You want to go on holiday? Where you want to go? I'll sort it out for you. I've got friends everywhere. I'm William Burkett, goddammit. Everyone loves me. Because <laughs> he saw it as a chance to give any person, no matter how poor their start in life, an opportunity to rise above their humble beginnings and to make themselves into someone in a new place. So you, could, you could go across to, you know, anywhere in Europe and you could, he would support you to to go and make a name for yourself. Why do I think this is going to take a really dramatic turn? Because you've listened to the podcast and, and been on the podcast <laughs> before. But no, 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 because he was a generally nice guy. Okay. And William Burkett died on Sunday, October 24th, 1703, at the age of 53. Oh, so quite young. Yeah. Although, for that, for 1753. So that's the story of William Burkett. Hope the you enjoyed end. it. Mm, great. Happy. Oh, oh. <laughs> that's not going to cover an hour and a half or whatever it is you have now. Shit, no, sorry. No, that that was wrong. Um, I, <clears throat> This story starts in Dublin in 1838 because that is when William Burkett was born. Okay. His family were overachievers full of judges, theologians and doctors. And it was clear that William would be following in their footsteps because... When everyone's an achiever in the family, you can't let the side down. Absolutely. No matter how thick you might be or how unsuited to any kind of public office or specific, you know, specific professions, mm-hmm. if everyone else in the family's doing well, you've got a choice of a few jobs. You're either going to be, you know, vicar, lawyer or doctor. And that was the case for poor old William Burkett. He was educated at Trinity College and called to the bar at Middle Temple before joining the Bengal Civil Service in 1861 at the age of 23. It's exotic. Mm. Well, you know, at that time we we were um, helping to administrate India and they were very thankful, aside from the occasional famine and civil war and uprising. And just all the things that come with occupation. No, they were really happy with us, I think, Mm, generally. Pleased. Yeah, you you could tell by by the way that at the start of World War Two, um, they were actively discussing whether they should side with the Axis powers. That's that's how you know that people really enjoy the way you rule them. <laughs> They're discussing either siding with the Axis powers or just taking advantage of the situation for a full on rebellion. You, mm. You're doing well. I would go rebellion. Yeah, well, Gandhi definitely did. Mm, good on him. Anyway, this is slightly before then. So, by the time William Burkett retired in 1904, 43 years later, he had risen through the ranks to become the most senior judge in all of British India. So he'd he'd done well for himself. I mean, it had taken him 43 years. I mean, that's dedication, isn't it? Mm. I can't stick at a job for more than four years. Yeah, so, you know, imagine doing that ten times over. No, thank you. 
I mean, at least he was, you know, he's in a nice part of the world. And I'm guessing yes, that he yes. was living in the lap of luxury. Yes, I can, I can just see it now as some sort of British villa, <laughs> sort of looking like it should be out of Downton Abbey or something, just plunked in the middle of, like, yeah. India. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he was, li- he was living in a little Watland Daub cottage. Yes, like early exactly. Tudors that had just been built in the middle of some It's jungle. really bizarre when you see these travel programmes. I used to watch quite a lot of them, like, with Michael Palin. And um, like when he's when he's going around and and they go to India and and also now Pakistan, like you see all these buildings and they wouldn't look out of character in like the English countryside. It's really bizarre. It's like, are you going to assimilate with the local population? No, no, they should assimilate with me. Exactly. Yes, I, I <laughs> this think is ours now. So what we need to do is we we need to make this landscape look more like Britain. That's what we need to do. We need to take away all the interest, all of the... Culture, religion, all of it. Anything that makes it desirable. And we need to just make it look a bit like Milton Keynes. Yes. They'll thank us later. I promise you. (laughs) This is before Milton Keynes was even a dream in someone's (laughs) little brain. I don't think Milton Keynes has ever been a dream. Do you know, it's funny. It depends who you speak to. Because people either really get Milton Keynes or they just really don't. It's it's very Americanised the way that it's constructed. Some people really love it. Is it Stockholm Syndrome, though? Is it people convincing themselves? Was that the cat? That was the cat knocking my notebooks off the table. Uh, no more story, guys. That's it. That's it, Noxie. Consistently eccentric... eccentric I can't even say it. Consistently eccentric is cancelled. No, because I read off my phone. So... Welcome to the BBC. He had not only risen to be the premier judge in all of British India, he had also risen in the Freemasons to become District Grand Master of Bengal. They just give themselves these titles, don't they? Well... It meant that he was in charge of half of all the Freemasons in the entirety of India. The other okay. half, in case you were wondering... I were, was wondering, yeah. They were under Lord Kitchener, the man I in the World him. War One pictures, yeah. I know him. And didn't um, when the Empire Windrush came over, the, one of the chaps named himself Lord Kitchener, and they sang that, London is the place for me, that one. I do not know. But it's, it's a fact. Look it's it a up. fact. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, this Lord Kitchener, he was at the time the district grandmaster of the Punjab. So the two of them were sort of like, bet- between the two of them, they held all the power in the Freemasons at the time. And they worked together for a noble purpose mm-hmm. because they decided that what they needed to do to ensure peace in that region, you know, because when you, when you get in to certain areas around India, there's there's some countries that are a bit less stable. Mm-hmm. So what they decided to do is, in order to ensure peace, everlasting peace, they would induct the Emir of Afghanistan, okay, Habibullah Khan, into the Freemasons. Because if he was a fellow brother Mason, the Afghanistan problem was sorted. There would never be another issue, and there would be a settled democracy in Afghanistan, which as we can see, has lasted to this day. Yes, 100%. So, I mean, I think it really is the crowning achievement uh, of, of William Burkitt. He definitely thought so, because after he'd done that, he was like, there's nothing more for me over, over there. So he returned to London, where he died at Norris's Hotel on June 16th, 
20 people, mm. then... It's industrialisation. Yeah. What, what can That's we what do? That's what it is. That's what it it's, is. It's terrible. Yeah. So, it's running all the traditional fishermen out of business. But luckily, William Senior, he didn't have to worry about it, and he didn't have to learn to work in the newfangled steam-powered boats. As he died in 1901, when William Jr. was just 14 years old. Okay. Now the man of the house, young William Burkett, he had to get a job. I mean, he's 14. I know, it's about time, really. Yeah. He's he's been lying around, lounging around in his house, using the place as a hotel. Mm. He's got to start contributing. Mm. He especially needed to get a job because after he'd been born, his parents had gone on to have eight other children who all needed feeding. So they'd been prolific. Busy. Yeah, I mean mm. maybe that contributed to William's early demise. <laughs> Just the sheer. Just a- just the steam had been blown out of him. Yeah, the level of libido that man was living with. He, he, yeah. he was living fast and he was dying young. And another child, and another child, and another child. And that's to say nothing of his wife, Mary Ann. I mean, poor Mary Ann. Because based on the sort of timings, this was... She she was not done healing from the last birth before he was just straight yeah. back to, to pestering won- for sex. Yeah, I always wonder that, though. Like, if you're like pregnant like mm. for like nine years solid like surely that's gonna take its toll well you mm. what you mean just how much of your body's resources are going to growing other humans yeah in terms on, of your like, own... on that and you yeah it just must be exhausting mm. as well because you've got the other kids to raise at the same time I, I wonder if at a certain point you just stop remembering what it was like to be anything else and that's just your natural level hmm yeah. I don't know. W- and any wife of mine wouldn't have to worry about that. Mm. Any wife of yours will be confused and sad. <laughs> no babies for you. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Not mine, anyway. William, he needed to get a job, so he looks around Hull, saw the docks, uh, and he took a job as a fireman. He took a job as a fireman on one of the steam trawlers which is basically just keeping the furnaces. So all he did was lug a few tons of coal into the furnace every single day of his life to keep yeah. the engines running. Okay. It was it was a job that probably could have been automated, but luckily for William it wasn't, and he just not, stayed not yet. below the decks on these little steam trawlers just constantly shoveling coal in there. It was hard work, and it didn't provide much in the way of career progression. So no. he knuckled down, he did that job. For over a decade. Ugh, what? Yeah, and to all the world he seemed the perfect example of a dutiful son putting his family before himself. Oh, I I like I liked that um that key change in your voice. Like what's gonna happen? Well no, he you know, he he was doing what his mother had asked and he'd okay, I will wait until you've got less kids to support, I will spend my teens and my early 20s below decks on a fishing trawler in Hull just so that, you know, my brothers and sisters can get to the point where they can strike out on their own. I'm willing to take that hit because I am a good man. Okay. But, as I've said, he was also in his early 20s. And a man of that age has needs. He does. And it appears that he didn't really care where and how he got these needs met. Okay. As in November 1913... William was summoned to court in order to pay for an illegitimate child he had sired. Mm. 
He was back in court the following month, having ignored the order to pay costs the first time around. So either because he was not willing to admit that he was the father or because he literally didn't have enough money available to pay for the child. After all... both. Well, he was paying for eight kids. But yeah, I mean, as soon as you admit it, and it's not like they had DNA testing, Mm, he could just hope this kid grew up and looked nothing like him. He couldn't go on the Jeremy Kyle show. Well, no one can now, thank God. Good, that was awful. But whether it was because he didn't want to admit it or because he didn't have the money, uh, it seems the mother of this child realised she wasn't going to get anywhere in terms of financial gain and the child was never mentioned again to William Burkett. So he may have had a kid running around, but we kind of lose track of that because William Burkett didn't care. This affair may have impacted William's mental health as he became something of a frequent visitor to the courts in Hull from this point on racking up quite a few drunken disorderly charges through 1914. However, these multiple convictions didn't stop the Royal Navy from signing him up at the outbreak of World War I and assigning him to a ship called the Hero. I was going to try and make a reference to the last episode we did on Navy speak, but I can't for the life of me remember... A single bit. A single phrase that was said... I, I can remember that a long tom is a paintbrush with a on the end of a stick, but I don't what, know how I'd reference that into here. What about med? What was the medals one? Oh, um, canteen medals. Canteen medals. I bet you got loads of them. There we go. Well done. We we did the segue. We got them. <laughs> now, there have been six versions of the HMS Hero over the years, including three seventy-four gun sailing ships, which must have looked majestic. Mm. A screw-propelled 91-gun ship and a Conqueror-class ship that was literally designed to act like a giant battering ram. So they, I love that. Basi- they made the, the prow of it, super-reinforced it, and it was just all about speed. Just they, charge and speed and destroy. I mean, they put two guns on it, but they were mm. both forwards-facing with the express aim of just softening up the area you were about to ram. So it wasn't like you could tilt them and swivel them to shoot anything else that might be coming at you you were you were just like a boat torpedo i love that they never got a chance to test it though they built this ship and they sort of sank it as firing practice for the australian navy like 20 years later and it never rammed anything so can ships i always thought ships had to be named like unique names but you can have different versions of the same ship yeah. Yeah. yeah like i say there were six of them And of all of these HMS heroes, William Burkitt was having an experience on none of them because he was not on a HMS hero. Mm -hmm. He was just on the hero, which was a hired trawler that would be acting as a minesweeper. Possibly joined the Royal. Scary, isn't it? Well, he possibly joined the Royal Navy with an idea of, I just I've been below decks on a tiny trawler for the past Mm. decade. I just want to. I just want to change it up. I just want to experience something different. I'll join the navy, and they've gone. You've got a no. lot of experience um, <laughs> as a fireman on a trawler. Do you know we've just pressed ganged some trawlers into commission uh, to help us with minesweeping duties? There you go. So he went from I, one trawler to another, essentially. I always thought being on a submarine would mm. be terrifying. Well, it would be for you because you have height. I think for me, yeah. I'd be quite fine. I th- I'm, oh. I'm probably the size of a submariner. Fine. You know, my dad was named after his uncle that was killed in a 
submarine blast in World War Two. Little wow. fact for you there. Was he on the yeah. submarine, or was it the submarine that had done the blasting? So he was on the submarine that was sunk. So his uncle Raymond mm. was killed um, on this. So the Nazis like blew up this ship, and uh, he was on it. And then my dad was born like a few months later, and they named him Raymond. Oh wow! Ooh. Yeah, little fact. Oh, so in a weird way, he has the Nazis to thank for his name. He does. He does. He'd be so pleased. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Hitler. <laughs> thank you, Mein Führer. So, yeah, he's been put on this. And minesweeping duty, essentially what they'd do is they'd uh, string a chain between two of these and you would just oh, sail God. to try and um, set off the mines. And you'd literally just be clearing a path because anything between those chains you'd know was okay. So the big ships would follow. Mm. And the only the only extra excitement he got as opposed to his normal fishing routine, was they mounted a single six-pound gun on on the trawler. Okay, well, at least he has something. Well, they got one tiny pea shooter of a bang-bang. It wasn't... Better than nothing, though. Yeah, I, I question if you were being attacked by a German warship, especially when this is the time when we were getting dreadnought-class, you know, warships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What it would do if you had a six-pound gun. <laughs> Plop. <laughs> we tried, lads. Anyway, to a watery grave we go. <laughs> so I think personally William he he got ideas that he would immediately be put onto a proper naval ship a proper ship yeah or at least something a bit grander than the exact same ship he'd been on for 13 years or maybe he took one look at the hero and he didn't like its chances of surviving the war being as it was just a trawler with a little gun on it mm. but whatever the reason he waited until the hero had docked in Dover and he promptly deserted. He went to the train station. He got himself a ticket back to Hull. Uh, and he went home. Because <laughs> the boat did not live up to his standards. Hi, guys. Just back. Unfortunately for him, because he'd gone straight home, the Navy knew where to look. So he was promptly arrested, ordered to pay costs, and then sent back to the Navy to ship out on a different boat. I think that's <clears throat> mad that you could get put in prison for like leaving the military early well he they they just said well we're gonna just put you on a different boat you thought you got it no you didn't get away but what about if you kept just refusing to go would you just get in, put in prison let's see shall we oh. as a postscript to the the little thing about the hero the hero it not only survived world war one but was called into service again during world war Two. Oh. though by this time it had undergone a change in gender and was okay. known as the heroine. Okay, fine. So it was a transgender boat. And Ahead I su- of its time. Yeah, I support that choice. But it mm. it survived World War One, and then it was such a good, capable boat that it was still going 30 years later. Do you think we still have ships that are, like, from World War Two? Um, at least one of the Mersey ferries uh, was, I believe, helped in Dunkirk. And that's still... It's still carrying. sailing. You can go on it, yeah. From Birkenhead to mm. Liverpool. Yep, you can do the full full tour, and they will play Ferry Cross the Mersey at you. I've I've done it. Splitting volume. I loved it. Yep. I loved it. And they've got all of the uh, the. Um... It's actually really cold out there. You don't expect it because you you're like, oh, it's only it's only over there. It gets really cold. And all the you know all the outdoor seats that you sit on, mm-hmm. the sort of nice wooden benches. Yeah, yeah. They're all the lifeboats. <clears throat> 
Oh, no way. So I've sat on history and I didn't You've even You've sat know on it. the lifeboats because when you turn them upside down, that forms the, the sort of bit where the two benches connect forms the keel and you sit in that. It was a way that they could um, get the lifeboats on and have seating for the passengers. Well, so they should nice have told the Titanic that, shouldn't they? Oh, if only. If only. When I was in Belfast, they were like, yeah, it was fine when it left here. <laughs> yeah. Well, to it be fair fine. to them, it was. It's like, yeah, I don't know what those yeah. buggers in Liverpool did to it, but when, know, when exactly. we left it... It was fine. Yeah. So, yeah, he was going to have to ship out on a different boat. And with the hero no longer in dock... He was probably thinking, I bet, I bet I'll get something better this time. He was assigned to the Dynas, which was another trawler. Mm-hmm. And it would be act- acting as a minesweeper. Just gone from one to the other. Yeah, he got the exact same boat. There was no no benefit to him. Oh, they did that on purpose, didn't they? And this time, William, he actually stayed aboard for five months. Before the Dynas docked in Dover in April 1915, when he promptly went back to the same train station, bought the same train ticket... And went home. <laughs> you would have thought he'd go somewhere else, wouldn't you? Well, I don't think he knew anything outside of Hessel Road. That was it. Who of us do know anything outside of Hessel Road? Well, all I'm thinking is he probably got on the boat at the Albert Dock in Hessel Road. And then he was on the boat. So when they got to, to Dover, it was the first time he'd been anywhere else in the country. He's like, oh, shit. And just started asking people, how do you get to Hull? I suppose, am though, I, yeah. Am I near Hull? <laughs> Please. This is before, like, mass travel you kind of just stayed yeah unless you were moving for work if you were in an industry town or like a fishing town or city or whatever that's that's where you stayed well he got back to hull and of course the navy knew where to find him Mm -hmm. Uh, so they went and found him and they charged him with desertion again and he was ordered to pay costs but this time they were like do you know what we don't want to try again with you we we have the feeling that your heart is not in supporting your country during the Great War. So we're just going to leave you be. And so he got a job at Hull Docks, and his great adventure in the Royal Navy was over. That was oh, it. He'd done his end. part in the Great War. It was also during April 1915 that William Burkett fell in love oh, with a nice. woman called Mary Ann Taylor. Though apparently everyone called Mary Ann Taylor Polly. Because okay. why not? I mean, that's... You you can see where that nickname comes from, mm-hmm. with Mary Ann Taylor. Of course, she's a Polly. Yeah, she was older at thirty-two. She was married. still younger than me. <laughs> she was married. Oh, okay, right, fine. But, though to be fair, she was estranged. Okay, but she did still see her husband from time to time. Mm, okay. All right, so she was estranged, but not all the way. And she was, at the time William met her, living with a fisherman called Harding, with whom she was also sleeping. Uh, Okay, okay. So she was still having relations with her husband, but she was estranged from him. It it was And she had this other chap. That her and her husband still had feelings for each other, lustfully, but in terms of being able to live together, that dynamic didn't work. To be fair, I've been in positions like that before. She was a very forward-thinking woman, it seems, because mm, she she had her. she was she was very liberated. Yeah. There's no, you know, she just decided what, what she wanted. What year is this? Uh, this is 1915. Okay. Yeah, so early doors. So she obviously went to Harding and said, "Look, I, I'm not with my husband anymore, and I'd like to live with you because we're compatible in terms of living together." But 
I still want to have sex with him because sexually we are so compatible, it's insane. Yeah. I'll still have sex they're so with you. Angry at each other. Sometimes yeah, it's, it's hate better. Sex. Yeah. And then she just suddenly met William and was like, I want to bring William I wanna bring William into this because he he gives me something the other two men in my life can't and I wanna be fulfilled across in the piece. All aspects, yeah. yeah, fine. I'm a liberated woman and this is what I'm gonna do. And fair play and more power to her. She knows what she wants and she's getting it. However, Mm. William, although he said he was cool with it, like many people do, say, oh, yeah, I I can, yeah, I can go with that. That's fine. He'd wanted to change her. And the relationship was difficult, to say the least. With William adding a further court appearance to his record for, and this is a direct quote, causing a crowd to assemble. Oh, my. Which right. I imagine was the front of, um, you know, Polly and Harding's house as he was shouting expletives. Oh, God. Yeah. That happened in June. However, okay. things only really reached ahead in August when Polly saw a picture of Burkitt on holiday in Scarborough with his arm around another woman. Hold on. She can't be playing this card. Well, we don't know what the terms were. She may have said, mm. I expect... My men to For be faithful. loyalty, yeah, fine. But I am allowed to do what I want. Hmm. I think is unless you've set these terms down early, it just gets very messy. It does. You really do need to set out the ground rules of a relationship. You do. You need a contract mm. and you need it signed. Yeah, that's what marriage is, essentially. So yeah. people have known for a long time. You do, you do kind of need... I mean, some people can, you know, roll with it and great for them. Although, like, there's no real big like consequence now is there if you are a married person and have an affair like it's not there's no like oh aside from the pain that you cause to other people no you're right yeah no 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 there's that but there's no like legal consequences to it there will be if the divorce goes through because you will be seen as the uh but can't you get can't you get divorced like say you didn't like say the person didn't have an affair can't you get divorced just on grounds of You've not lived together for a certain amount yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah. There are other ways to do it. I think it's harder to get a divorce in Scotland, funnily. So if you are going to get married to someone, Ollie, just, just think on. Um, okay, Make sure you check that out. Put a pin in it. We'll go back noted. to it. Noted, yeah, yeah, noted. But yeah, it, it reached ahead because she saw this picture of him with his arm around another woman in Scarborough. But you know what they say. What happens in Scarborough stays, stays in, Scarborough. in Scarborough. So really, she shouldn't have been prying. No. She was livid at the thought William might be having another lover. Mm. So she screamed at him, she hit him, and oh. she threw him out, telling him, go back to your Scarborough fancy woman. <laughs> I want a Scarborough fancy woman. I know. It, the two terms, Scarborough and fancy, just seem diametrically opposed, but she's managed to use them in a sentence and it's made sense. I remember going on a really nice holiday in Scarborough. I've never been as an adult, but I remember thinking it was the best thing ever. I, I go back before you, you solidify that opinion. Maybe I shouldn't. No, no, we'll go together. It'll be great. I mean, <laughs> you could be my Scarborough fancy I man. will be your Scarborough <laughs> fancy woman for one weekend only. The arguments continued over the following days until on Saturday, August 28th, at a quarter to nine in the evening, William Burkett knocked on the door of his mother's house. Okay. Assuming her son had finally been kicked out for good, she opened the door and asked what had happened. I have done Polly in, William replied. She won't tantalise anyone else. Come with me and I'll show you. 
What a lovely word to use after you've just tantalised somebody. In. William then led his shocked mother to the house Polly shared with the fisherman. He unlocked the door and led her through to the kitchen. The body of Polly Taylor lay in a pool of blood. She had four deep stab wounds to her neck, with the killing blow being the one that severed her jugular. Jesus. William then led his shell-shocked mother back out of the house and locked the door behind him. On the way back to the family home, William bumped into Polly's daughter, Flora Taylor. He handed the young girl the key and told her to find a policeman and take him to the house where she would find her dead mother. What? Yeah, well, you know. I mean, that's honesty, isn't it? I mean, he's not admitted to it. But... No, 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 he's, he's, he's definitely done it in the passive. You will find your dead mother, not I have killed or hmm. you'll find the mother I deaded. Oh, my. <laughs> I, I have deaded her. <laughs> I have deaded her. She is now dead. The end. When he got back to his mother's house, he handed his younger brother a blood-stained bent knife, mm-hmm. which just goes to show the level of violence. It was, it was bent. Oh, God. Before yeah. he decided to go for a little walk, uh, he was found by an officer called PC Marshall. Down the Hessel Road. He was found on the docks in Hessel Road by mm-hmm. PC Marshall. And he didn't, to be fair to him, resist arrest, saying, she's brought me down to this. Well, there's no point, is there? You've just been caught. There's a bit of victim blame in there that I don't think's fair. No. You know, I mean... She made me do it, she did. Oh, no, he wouldn't talk like that, would he? No, I can't She made. She made me do it, she did. She's brought me right down. But it's like, my thought in that is, you could have just walked away. You know, if she was giving you a hard time, you weren't married to her, like her husband was you weren't living with her like the fisherman was you were literally the one who had the easiest break from her but jealousy and love can make you do some weird things Mm, like multiple stabs I mean I've never murdered anyone but I felt like it before (laughs) well that's the difference between you and William Burkett he's a man of action yeah and I'm just a pussy Mm. the murder trial was set for November 23rd 1915 it seemed like it would be an open and shut case. However, William's defence lawyer, Rowan Hamilton, had other ideas. I like that name. Mm. You might not like the man, though, because uh. realising that the evidence of Burkitt physically stabbing Polly was overwhelming, he decided the best option was to try and suggest that Polly had in some way deserved it in order to argue no. the conviction down to manslaughter. Scum. He tried to paint Polly as a woman of easy virtue. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter if she was. Yeah, with a string of lovers, a drinking problem, and a temper. Still doesn't matter. I know it still doesn't stop it being murder. But he was basically like, she was essentially a prostitute. So come on. And and because she was a woman as well, I bet everyone was like, oh. This argument was strengthened somewhat by Polly's own sister when she was called to the stand and had to admit that she had never even heard of the relationship with Burkitt until after Polly had been killed. So his argument of She's got so many lovers. No, you know, no one can keep track. And her own sister went, "Well, actually, I wasn't aware of number three. Um, I, you know, I mean, again, do you tell your siblings none of this everything? justifies murder. Yeah, I want Would to be very your... clear. I wouldn't tell my siblings everything. I say siblings, sibling. Yeah, if I was in an open relationship with a string of lovers, mm. I, I don't think that's what I'd be putting on the round robin at Christmas. I'll give you that uh, on the on the Facebook. Status. Well, you just put it's complicated and leave it, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. 
Hamilton asked the jury to consider just how difficult the relationship had been on poor little Burkitt and his poor sensitive heart. And he seemed to suggest that the very fact that he had not stabbed Polly within a week of knowing her had demonstrated superhuman patience and understanding on William Burkitt's part. So we've not known her that long? All in all, it was, uh, we're talking months, because he met her in April, he'd stabbed her in August. But Hamilton Hamilton was basically saying, oh, he was so in love and he just wanted a faithful woman. And despite the fact that she was already seeing two men and was quite happy with that when he met her, he was hurt that she wouldn't choose him and monogamy over the life that she apparently was very much enjoying. I hate this, making the victim look like like they're to blame for it. And the judge, you'll be happy to know, he mm. was on your side. He, he was fighting Good. your corner and he was very unimpressed with the argument. He pointedly told the jury that if nagging by wives was justification to reduce a charge from murder to manslaughter, it would be a very dangerous thing. <laughs> They'd all be dead. <laughs> They'd all be dead and all the men would be in prison for manslaughter. And in 15 years, we'd just have a load of murderers on the streets. Think about it, people. Think. The jury, however, decided that they liked to live dangerously and they found Burkitt guilty of only manslaughter. The judge, presumably cursing under his breath... Can you not overrule them? No, no, the judge, essentially, he is there to direct the jury on points of law, but the jury can, and have in the past, stated during their um, deliverance of the verdict, juries have stated, we know that this is not in keeping with the law, but morally, we can't find this person guilty. So, as a jury, ah, you have the ultimate okay. power. You are tried by 12 of your peers. They can use whatever, you know, parameters they want to come to their so decision. The if you knew that someone was 100% guilty yeah. and the jury had said they're innocent, then that's the verdict. Yeah, they're innocent. Regardless, even if you had CCTV and everything, yeah, and, and they the, were like... Historically, there have been situations where the jury have gone, yes, he's guilty, but we don't believe the law is fair, so we're just going to find him innocent. Oh, and the ju- oh, the it's judge like a middle finger to British, gov- uh, British um, justice, isn't it? Yeah, and then once the, once the jury's rendered their verdict, the judge has um, sentencing guidelines, so he's got to work within those, which is why this judge, who probably wanted William Burkett to hang, couldn't do that because it wasn't one of the options available to him. I could never send someone to hang. I'd always go for prison. Yeah, well, especially now, luckily. It'd be really weird Mm. if today you hang him. Oh, you do get some idiots, though, that I saw it on, like... You see it on Facebook and stuff. Mm. They're like, oh, they should bring back capital punishment. It's like, you would be the first on the noose. Like, As far as I'm concerned, if even... 0.1 0.1 of a percentage is false conviction or, you know, wrongful conviction. Mm. That's too many people to kill. And it, it's happened. Like, people oh, have God, been yeah. found, like... Can you imagine being sent to, like, the gallows, like, knowing that you were innocent? That's a recurring nightmare I have. Is it? Yeah. Is it because you live in Lancaster and you're actually a witch? It's because most of the times I'm reading stories about people who are hung. <laughs> That's the problem researching Fine. history. You're just like, oh, my God, I'm reading a lot of last words here today. Yeah. What would your last words be? Uh, probably shit. And then you would actually shit yourself. Well, yeah. The hangman, no, he's getting say, my clothes, but he's going to have to launder them. You would wear your finest silk, I hope. No, I'd wear the rattiest 
nattiest clothes I own. Smelliest. And then I would shit in them. So the hangman was getting no extra income off me that day. Fine. I can imagine, though, your last words would be quite poetic. No, I think I'd be overcome by terror. I'm not going to be pithy in death. No, I reckon you'd hold it together. And um, I'll be cheering, cheering you on. If I hang, you'll be right at the front. Yeah. Oh, good. I'll well. be there, just in, case, just in case the noose doesn't break your neck, I'll be there to pull on your legs to make sure it... <laughs> oh, bless you. <laughs> That's what friends are for. William Burkitt was eventually sentenced to 12 years in prison. Oh. He was, however, released after only nine years on November 23rd, 1924. Okay. He had spent his time inside thinking seriously about how to turn his life around. Did he find God? Well, not quite that far, but he 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 had resolved it. I'm going to spend my second chance wisely. I'm going to I'm going to make up for the murder I definitely committed, even though they mm-hmm. called it manslaughter. He quickly shacked up with a married woman <laughs> uh, named Ellen Spencer. Named Polly Taylor. Ellen Spencer, though, she'd achieved a degree of celebrity two years earlier by being the first woman in all of Hull to be caught shoplifting via an anti-theft alarm. <sighs> so she's clearly a catch, is what I'm saying. <sighs> you know, she... What was she stealing, though? I don't know. It was just a general store, so I don't think it was anything fancy. This was like food that she but was stealing. That's... Like, if you need to have... I, I don't think stealing food is wrong. Even now. Everyone go to Tesco and steal some food. I think it depends. If you're stealing bread and staples, fine. You know, the... the the costing's minimal, the sp- you know, it's fine. If mm. you're stealing caviar and champagne, have a word. Oh, where are you shopping? The caviar and champagne shop. <laughs> you, know, you know how much money NHS nurses make. It's yeah, ridiculous. Mm. I just throw money out the window sometimes because I can't physically store it all in my house. <laughs> Do you throw it out the window and they're like, fetch children, fetch. <laughs> oh, look, here come the poor. <laughs> Much like Polly, Ellen was a married woman who was estranged from her partner. Mm-hmm. And much like Ellen, she was now living in sin with another bloke called Sarginson, who I assume was Nordic in origin. Yeah. It seemed that Burkitt was a fan of being a third wheel, with benefits, obviously, and he managed to keep his new arrangement going for nearly a year without okay. any issues. So maybe he'd learnt from the other one. He's like, actually, maybe I do it's- like being part of a thruple. I mean, some people are into it, aren't yeah. they? Maybe this, maybe this is the alternative lifestyle choice for me. Yeah. Because obviously he was still working on trawlers, so he's away for periods of time. Yeah, yeah, so she could get her needs elsewhere. Yeah, and then he came back, and maybe by that time, Sarginson, he was a bit tired, so he'd tap out and go for a lad's weekend. and Yeah, and then know, he can tag in. And through all of this, Ellen, she's... She's maintaining the level of intimacy that she wants. So it's a win-win-win in this relationship. (laughs) It's a win-win-win. But the month of November seemed to always do something to Burkitt. It was the month of his first court appearance, his first desertion from the Royal Navy, and, of course, his first murder trial. First murder trial. Maybe, Ah! Maybe it was something to do with the colder weather. I don't know. We all get seasonal affective disorder to some degree. Yeah. Maybe he just he was more sensitive to a lack of vitamin D and it, it, it sent him cuckoo bananas. Whatever the reason, though, Burkitt had returned from a stint at sea and he'd immediately gone on a bit of a bender at the local pub before going to see his beloved Ellen. 
Oh, lovely Ellen. Unfortunately for him, Ellen wasn't home, so, according to William himself, he settled down on Ellen's sofa to sleep off his night. Yeah, he'd had, he'd had enough. It'll be bright and breezy tomorrow when she gets back. Mm, yeah. He also said that for reasons unknown, he had decided to sleep with an open pocket knife clutched in his hand. Okay. Unfortunately, and possibly due to PTSD from his time in prison, Burkitt was always on a hair trigger when he was sleeping. Yeah, I can imagine if you're in prison, you kind of have to be, don't you? Well, what it meant was, when his beloved, beautiful Ellen gently shook his shoulder to wake Mm. him, Burkitt flailed out in a panic, and he tragically managed to stab Ellen in the neck several times, including one blow that severed her jugular. Oh, yeah, so that wasn't uh, an accident, was it? Well, that was... What I just told you was the story he told in court, so... Right, okay. He he was trying to paint a bit of a word picture with that one. However, Idiot. his lovely story, it kind of contradicted the circumstantial evidence and his own statement to the police at the time. You see, after the incident with the knife and the blood, William Burkett, he didn't exactly behave the way that you would expect an innocent person to behave. Okay. Firstly... He didn't try to get any medical attention for Ellen. Okay. So if you'd accidentally stabbed someone you loved, you would. Yeah. your first thought would be, I need a doctor, I need somebody to come and I help me to help save them. this person's yeah. life. Instead, he covered her still warm body with a couple of coats, locked all the doors, closed all the curtains, and then turned the gas on and went upstairs for a nice little sleep. Why did he turn the gas on? Well, he was trying to gas himself. Uh... Okay. As, you, as you do when, you know, there's been a, an innocent tragedy. A little while later, Ellen's daughter, Matilda, arrived to visit her mother mm. and possibly head up to town for a little light shoplifting. <laughs> I'm not I'm not judging, but maybe that's what they did. If you need bread, you need bread. Mm. When she saw all the curtains closed, she was immediately concerned and she asked the neighbour to help her break in. She found her mother's blood-soaked body on the sofa and she immediately called the police. That's going to cause some trauma. Well, this is the second time that William Burkett has the inadvertently daughter, had yeah. a daughter discover the stabbed-up mother. So, yeah, the he's... On, yeah, he's ruined them two ladies' lives. Mm. He likes to spread the trauma far mm. and wide. <laughs> share, share the trauma. And again, both of these women, Polly and Ellen, they both lived in Hessel Road area. So mm. this is quite a confined kind of terror that he's bringing. Yeah. When the police found the partially gassed William Burkett in the bed upstairs, he said to them, and I quote, remember this this was a tragic accident, I stabbed her because I was jealous. Well, at least he's honest. Yeah, but it kind of kind of contradicts this, you know, story told in court, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because he was saying, oh, it was an accident. Yeah. But also I'm a bit jealous, you know. Maybe subconsciously. Maybe that's what he said. Subconsciously, I wanted to stab her. <laughs> and I'd, I'd woken, but I wasn't quite fully there. And my subconscious just went wild. Arrest him. Yeah. Arrest my subconscious. Get Freud I in here. I always think, what about if, like... I think we might have had this conversation before, but what about if you've... Like, you murder someone in your sleep? Like, are you still... Are you still guilty? I'm pretty sure you could use the insanity defence because you didn't know what you were doing at the time of the murder. It has. People sleepwalk and everything, don't they? So it must happen. There is provision in the law to say, well, I wasn't 
in charge aware. of myself and aware. So yes, you could get off on a technicality with it. Whether people believe it would be the thing because it is a bit. It's been overdone by Hollywood, hasn't it? You know, as a, yeah, as a plot device in so. pretty much every murder show that goes on more than three seasons, you will get the yeah. uh, Sleepwalker Killer. William was released from hospital after the gassing, just in time to be tried for murder in York. Almost ten years to the day since his first murder trial. God. And amazingly, despite the contradicting stories, the jury, they bought the idea that he had tried to commit suicide out of the grief following an unfortunate accident, and he was found guilty of manslaughter. Oh, what? A second time? You were, Okay, fine, the first time. Mm. But the second time, oh, it was, uh, it was her fault. With an almost identical murder, stabbing to the neck, cutting the jugular. No, it's mm. just another tragic accident. <laughs> I didn't mean it, sir. Even worse, this time he was only sentenced to ten years in prison for the crime. I bet he didn't do that, did he? Well, no, because due to the fun quirks of the English legal system, he actually served more time than he did during the first 12-year sentence. Emerging, blinking into the light from Dartmoor Prison on the 15th of August, 1935. It's the day before my birthday. Fine, I'll get you a present, goddamn. You don't need to shoehorn it in. (laughs) It's my birthday for um, 16th of August. Thanks. William returned to the same area of Hull where he had manslaughtered two women, again taking a job on the trawlers, despite now being 53 years old. So... Okay, right. So he's definitely repeating... Yeah, yeah. ...stuff here. How so? How? Because he's murdered two people. He's gone back to trawling yeah. every time he comes out. Is yeah. he going to murder someone else? Mm. Well, he did appear to be a bit of a, you know, he was he was essentially Bill Murray's character in Groundhog Day. You know, he couldn't, so, <laughs> he couldn't that film help used himself. to irritate the hell out of me. I can't imagine why. Oh, it was well because it just kept bloody repeating itself, and I would get so annoyed. I'd be like, "We've done this bit already. <laughs> We've done it." Well, anyway, he got out. He started working on the trollers again in 1935. Uh, and he met a woman called Emma Brooks, oh, who was estranged sake, right. from her husband. No. Yeah, she was still married, though, because he, he has a type, and it's the married woman who's estranged yeah. from her husband. And he started a relationship with her. If there okay. was any saving grace, though, it was that at least Emma was apparently living alone at the time that Burkett started dating her. Praise so Jesus. For the first time, he wasn't becoming part of a throuple. Okay. Which... It's it's progress. I mean, it's taken till he's fifty three, mm-hmm. but he's made some progress. So, yeah, yay him. The relationship lasted for around three and a half years. Okay, that's not to say it was happy. It just lasted longer. Yeah. William would often complain about Emma to his sister Maria. He said that he knew that she was seeing other men while he was away at sea, and that sometimes she would just randomly start selling his clothes while he was away. <laughs> Did he have fine silk? No, no, it was just random clothes. I don't know if that's like a power move, like, just just be aware, you could come back and I could be gone and all of your stuff could be gone. There's nothing. <laughs> it's like you were never here. Yeah. What? I even had the house demolished, William. Think of that. Can you imagine? For his part, though, William would often choke Emma 
and threatened to kill her. So it was coming from both sides. She was sort of mentally abusing him and he was physically abusing her because I don't think he had the brain capacity to mentally abuse anyone. He seemed like a very simple man who he he wasn't able to deal with complex emotions, let alone complex thoughts. Yeah. It's um I wonder why there there's definitely some trauma here. Like, why does he keep going back to the same thing? Well, if I may put on my uh, COD psychology hat for a moment. Mm-hmm. When his dad died, he de facto became the man of the house. Okay. So he was living with a widow, but a married woman in his eyes, who he, yeah. you know, he couldn't really have a full relationship with because it was his mother. I wonder if all of that, being treated almost like the husband, but also not like a husband because there wasn't that element to it messed him about a little bit you're coming home and i've got your tea on the table and we discuss finances and we have all of those arguments about where we're going to do this that and the other Mm. but there's no sexy time but there's no sexy time so whether he linked that into these married women that he was seeing where he couldn't have them completely yeah so it's withheld yeah whether that was just he, he wasn't able to go beyond a certain level of intimacy and these women being married to someone else provided a nice barrier to him having to make those commitments i don't know Hmm. but the fact that he managed to find three women within a few square miles who were married yet is yet estranged and they're all based off of this one road they're all based in this one small area of hull yes Everything that's happened, bar his little trips to Dover. They must all know each other and know him and know what well, he's you'd done. you think, yeah. Because the, the, the two previous murders definitely made the local paper. Well, I guess it's like these people that like end up dating like people on death row and stuff. It's almost like a thrill, isn't it? Oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be the one that changes them and I'll be the one that makes good of them. I think and a lot of it... It was that celebrity thing as well. A lot of it with dating prisoners on death row or in prison for life is the power dynamic as well because often it's women who have been hurt by men and mm. that relationship that they have in prison with a prisoner They've is one got that the they... power. All the power, all the control, at least at mm. the outset. I mean, Maybe I should do that. Manipulations that happen. But I might do that. Mm. Why? To start dating someone on death row. Well, I mean... Because then I'm the boss. <laughs> <laughs> oh god at least you didn't refer to yourself as boss hog we'd have ended the we'd have ended the episode there i, think. I am the boss hog i am boss hog <laughs> anyway back to my good friend william who was choking yeah. emma out and threatening okay. to kill her maria just took it as inventing yeah blowing off steam however when he turned up at her door on march 1st 1939 she could tell that something relatively serious had probably happened I bet she was like, oh, what now? Well, it may have been the fact that William was literally foaming at the mouth. Oh, OK. Or that he had claimed to have taken an overdose of 600 aspirin tablets. What? Which How did I... he get 600 aspirin tablets? Well, I'm sure Maria didn't believe that particular thing because there's no way he'd be breathing, no. let alone foaming at the mouth at her house. And Maria may have told him as much, as Burkett abruptly left her home for nearby Albert Dock where he threw himself into the water in an attempt to drown. Okay. He did this, though, at around 8am, so naturally there were plenty of dock hands around to fish him out. 
Because the problem of jumping into a working dock in order to drown yourself is it's a working dock. There are yeah, literally so there's people, hundreds of people everywhere. And they're all going to go, oh, look at that man drowning. Maybe we should do something about that. Maybe we won't. Well, they did. They fished him out. And while he was having a bit of a splash around, police have visited the house he shared with Emma Brooks. Yeah. Because Maria had wisely called the police. Because she knew what her brother was like. He was a bit stabby, a bit murdery. Sorry, manslaughtery. <laughs> Get it right, Jack. Yeah, I can't, I can't accuse him of that. So they went to the house he shared with Emma, and they found Emma dead on her bed. Of course they did. Although this time, she'd been strangled. Okay. Oh, so that's different. Yeah. He's changed his... Uh, it's not modem operandi, is it? Modus but... operandi, yes, M.O. Yes, he's changed his M.O. Mm. Probably just because he, he couldn't find a knife at that particular moment. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit. Damn it, where's the bread knife? A very damp William was promptly charged with the murder of Emma Brooks. Good. Facing his third murder trial... His third. The thing is, most people don't even get out of the first. Yeah. Well, he was facing his third murder trial on May 17th, 1939. Okay. This time, though... Ah, okay. Just as the war begins. Yeah, he had his his third murder trial in Leeds. The first two have been in York, but they've switched it up a bit. He's getting bored. he's he's, He's just moving further and further south. Well, this time, William claimed that he had returned from a stint at sea only for Emma to tell him all about a man she'd been having sex with while he was away in graphic detail. Oh, goodness. She'd left nothing to the imagination. Okay. He claimed that the next thing he remembered was seeing Emma dead on the bed and that realising what he'd done, he immediately attempted to kill himself. So he was... But he tried to kill himself the second time as well, didn't he? But this time he was like, I blacked out. I can't be held responsible for what happened. She goaded me so much that I literally, that pesky subconscious came out again, and it was yeah. it was subconscious who did it. And I saw what he'd done, and I thought, not again. I was horrified at the beast I had become inside. So I took some aspirin tablets, probably more like eight. 600 of them. Yeah, I took 70,000 tablets, and then I threw myself into the dock, uh, and it didn't work, but I wished it had. As the jury in Leeds were unaware of his previous offences, because you're not allowed to know ahead of time, lest it colour your judgement. Oh, you're not? No. That's one of the reasons they screen juries, is because you, you can't have previous knowledge of a person. Because if but you sure know... the internet and stuff, you can fucking Google it. It's more difficult now than it was, definitely. But the idea is, if you've got somebody who's been, you know, charged with murder three times, hmm. even if they didn't commit the fourth murder, and you know about the previous three... Yeah, you're just going to be like, yeah, they did it, well, even yeah. if they didn't. So you, uh, you've you got to, part of the screening process is you can't know the person, you can't know any of their history. Fine. And because the people of Leeds were far enough away from Hull, and bloody hell, I mean, he wouldn't go to Leeds. He's, no. you know, he's very much a home bird. He's probably only ever heard of Leeds in stories. I mean, it is the it is the place of dreams. Mm. So yeah, as as the jury in Leeds, they weren't allowed to know about his previous offences... They again fell for the unfaithful woman slash crime of passion angle, and they found him guilty of... Manslaughter. Of course they did. However, the judge, he decided that he was going to take into account the offending history, and he decided to sentence Burkitt to a life in prison. Okay, Commenting that, I can see, in your case, not one redeeming feature. 
So it's like, we've, we've tried to reform you twice now. You're not reformable. Go to the nearest prison and sit in it. And get gone. Yeah, until you die. Hmm. Back in Dartmoor, and with no reason to fake remorse for his actions, Burkitt revelled in his notoriety. He was given the nickname King of the Serial Killers and <laughs> the Iron Man of Hull, which the he apparently Iron- liked. Okay, fine. Can you imagine if you get given like a pseudonym and you hate it? Well, he actually also got a third one, which was just Fishy, and he, <laughs> he didn't like that one. Hello, Fishy. All right there, Fishy. Shut up. But you stink fish, though. <laughs> you bloody stink. I know. I mean, Fishy's Fishy's a poor one. But the other two, considering what he's done, he loved them. Because mm-hmm. serial yeah. killer, I guess, technically speaking, we normally think of murderers as serial killers. But he has serially killed people, even if it was only manslaughtering them. Yeah. Okay. He also got a series of three prison tattoos. These depicted three gravestones oh, gosh. with the dates of each of the murders, because let's call them what they obviously were, mm. underneath. So he's obviously embracing his character now. Well, he, he's like, been he'd told... He'd created his thing and he was going to run with it. Mm. The, all, all the times he was in trial, he was like, if I play this right, I will get to breathe free air again. Mm. And the the third judge made it very clear, screw you, this is it. So he's like, okay, well, I don't need to pretend anymore. Let's okay, let's fine. give that's myself the biggest rep in prison because that's the way that I'm going to get... Well, that's the way you survive in yeah, prison, Yeah, I'm going to get well, Where was he, of, Dartmoor? He was in Dartmoor, yeah. Okay, which is still an active prison, I believe. Mm. Uh, yeah, mm. yeah, it is. Yeah. However, despite getting the tattoos and reveling in the fact that people were referring to him as a serial killer. Mm. Burkitt still appealed to have his sentence reviewed on two separate occasions. Okay. First time round, he referred to his time in prison as a living death. Okay. Which is very dramatic. And then he decided to double down the second time, and he said that his sentence was, and this is a direct quote from his letter, this is him speaking... The most dreadful sentence that has ever been uttered by a sane judge. That's taking into account that a judge once said that someone should be boiled alive. Okay. That a judge, you know, back back way back when would regularly sentence people to hangings, beheadings, mm. you know, burning. By him, him getting this prison sentence is the no, worst. No, this is worse thing. than all of those. The okay. Pendle witches. They can fuck off. They 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 were treated <laughs> very well compared to what William Burkett had as a fifty three year old man being told You've killed three people. Maybe you're not right for for the community of Hessel Road. Maybe yeah. we need to take you out of there because they don't like you anymore. I mean if anything yeah. it was a public it was a service to him because you could imagine if he went back again. I they're very, very patient, the people of Hessel Road, obviously, but I think if he came back again, someone I mean, would stab do we him. Know, do we know what he looked like? Uh, yeah, there's pictures of him, because obviously this is the time of photographs. Okay. If you look him up, I mean, a lot of the pictures are him as an old man in prison. Okay, I want to see it now. Because, naturally, his appeals were dismissed. And in 1954, okay. William Burkitt was diagnosed with an incurable illness. Okay. I'm assuming one of the cancers. Fine. 
Considering the life he had lived, it feels like a bit of a sick joke that William Burkett was allowed to leave prison on compassionate grounds. Really? Yeah. Okay. To live out his last days in Hessel Road. No way. <laughs> yeah. The same place he had killed three women and attempted to kill himself on two occasions. Well, he just loves that road. What is so good about this road? What is buzzing? I don't know, but it was like catnip to Burkett. He couldn't leave it alone. I suppose it was home, wasn't it? Even though he was palliative, he still tried to escape from the tight supervision he received in the community in 1955. But his condition took a turn for the worse, and he spent the majority of 1956 in the Hull Royal Infirmary. Okay. Where he met a married nurse... Shut up. No, that's no not true. Way. No, no, no. Oh. <laughs> she was estranged, you know. <laughs> William Burkett died on Christmas Eve 1956, which must have been an early Christmas present for the people of Hessel Road. Yeah. He had spent only 24 of his 69 years in prison, which seems insane when the standard sentencing... yeah. The standard sentencing guidelines for a single murder is 15 to 30. And for three of them, he only spent that amount of time. He only spent 24 years behind bars. The FBI believe that the average length of time a serial killer is active is around two to four years, which kind of fits in with William Burkett if you exclude the period spent in prison. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Meaning that his is probably the only case on record in England of a person being allowed to become a serial killer by the criminal justice system. Ah, okay, yeah, because if, they, if he was locked away initially for the first point, then he wouldn't have become a and serial killer. I, I was looking at it, I was like, is this the longest people have gone between, you know, is this the longest it's yeah, taken yeah. to create a serial killer? Mm. And then literally, literally this week, um, there was a human leg discovered on a Brooklyn street. Okay. All right. And a few days before, they found a human torso. So they pieced them together. They found they fit. Yeah. It's a bit of a Cinderella story. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Cinderella story. <laughs> it was horrific. And I was like, oh, oh, my God. But the amazing thing is that they've researched who it was and they've arrested an 83-year-old trans woman called Harvey McLean. Okay. And she has also been in prison twice before for killing girlfriends. This is her third murder at the age of 83. So has she taken the crown? I, well, I, I think she, she has to. She's oh, served right. overall for these three murders that she's committed more than 50 years in prison for two... And she was also a stabber. She stabbed two of her previous girlfriends. But mm. at the age of 83, she completely butchered a body she cut away the head arms legs and she was just disposing of them in new york city but this came out the very same week that i was going oh well you know william burkett no one no one's taken longer to hit america always has to do things bigger and better the magical three that gets you the serial killer crown and no no it it goes to a woman from new york city which feels right in some ways uh, yeah, I, I would say so. It feels like, yeah. Anyway, the source I used, and I used a lot of sources, mm. including a number of newspapers local to Hull. And one thing I did find is every single one of the sources I read said that William Burkett went on HMS Hero. Okay. 
and it was the one one of those few times where I felt like a historian because I was like, actually, I think you'll find there was not a HMS hero in the Royal <laughs> Navy during the First World War. And that no, that Joe, I is, took my seat. You've made you've made it. Mm. I've added to the knowledge base around this story. So I would write right to the right to the papers and be like, actually, I, I want you to. Yeah, most of these articles came out in like two thousand and two or whatever. I want a retraction. And a correction from 2002 people, article. People do it. Mm. I have no personal, you know... Vendetta against, against you. But I, I feel that it is important that you don't say that he served on a HMS. He was on trawlers, which is where he should be. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week. <laughs>